Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is James, reading chapter 22 of Death and Other Origin Stories, The Night Bus. Remus dragged his and Sirius's haphazardly packed trunks, casting long and unusual shadows in the dying light of the evening down the lane. The wind was blowing and the rain clouds were gathering in the east as he heaved and groaned, sweating and swearing his way down the line of poplars that led to the train station. Dogs of the neighborhoods barked as he passed, slowly and painstakingly pulling the trunks forward step by tedious step. He felt tears build behind his eyes, hot and threatening. But instead of succumbing to the tightness of his throat and the horrible thoughts swirling in his mind, he redoubled his efforts. He had to get to the train. By the time he reached the town center, his hands ached, his shoulders burned with effort. The yellow street lamps were popping on, and most concerningly of all, he felt the telltale warning drops of a heralding rain. Hey, kid, what the hell? An angry voice startled him from his agonized trudging down the road, and he lifted his head to see Carl from the parlor standing in the door with his, with his fists on his hips and his face splotchy with rage. Thunder rumbled nearby. You were supposed to lock up and hear old man Blackburn calls and tells me and says you and Sirius took off. Lights on, register unlocked. Blimey, were you hoping we'd get robbed? Carl was panting now, stomping his foot and looking like he was about to throttle something. But Remus was well beyond his sense of responsibility to Carl, beyond even his sense of self-preservation. Only pausing slightly in his efforts, he huffed impatiently. Another few drops hit his face and a flash of lightning lit up the sky. Emergency. I gotta go, he offered, finally reaching the steps of the station, the wind lifting his sweat-soaked fringe. Carl's face flushed a sickly puce and his chest puffed up with indignation as a few scattered drops fell earnestly. Yeah, well, if you plan on keeping your job, get over here and finish your bloody shift. A crack of thunder sounded, closer still, and that was it. All of the fear and worry, panic and anger at Sirius being taken from him, from their summer together of all the times Remus had worked himself ragged as Carl sat there listening to the radio and barking orders from on high, all boiled over. You know what, Carl, you gormless muppet, you can take this two-bit job and shove it. The wind shook the tinkling bell above the door of the parlor, and he wasn't sure if it was the coming storm or his own anger and grief. I have more important things to do than scoop ice cream and mop your dingy floors, you asinine pillock. Remus shouted, the restless fury he rarely allowed to surface spilling out into the street as the rain began to fall in earnest. Carl was buffeted by a sudden gale, and his retort was lost in the torrent of sweeping rain. Through the haze of water and howling winds, Remus caught, You're fired, you and your little shit friend, followed by a string of what sounded like lewd curses lost to the wind, and then the slamming of a door. Lightning flashed again, a little too close for comfort, and Remus winced as the rain quickly permeated his sweater, making his skin break out in goose flesh. He tried in vain to haul one of the trunks up the steps to the station, but only succeeded in tipping it onto its side. Carl reappeared in his periphery, holding two envelopes crumpled in his hands and a mean look on his blotchy face. Remus watched, half-bent over his cumbersome trunk, as Carl tossed the envelopes out into the street, in the rain, the wind catching one and a few precious paper notes flying out, 
coins scattering onto the pavement. There's your last pay, Carl spat. Don't come back. And with that, he locked up the shop and strode off down the road, pulling his ugly jersey tight around his shoulders against the late summer storm. Remus, exhausted and wet, felt the panic he'd been fending off since that afternoon welling up in his chest. He yelled in frustration before stomping out to pick up the scattered coins and what paper notes he could find in the dark, wet street. Sirius's envelope had remained closed, and Remus could feel the weight of his tips from their previous shift. He stuffed the sodden money and envelopes into his trousers and pushed the wet fringe from his eyes, trying to steady his breathing. Pulling his wand out, he checked up and down the road for signs of muggles. The night and thunderheads had quickly consumed the last of twilight, and the rain obscured his vision. He took a deep breath. What should he do? How much magic could the ministry detect? Would a little levitation charm, just to get up the steps, get him in trouble? Would this be considered extenuating circumstances? A train rumbled into the station, and Remus watched from the platform, forlorn, water running rivulets through his hair, as not one soul got on or off the nearly empty carriages. And still he stood there with no way of pulling the now soaking trunks up the steps. Fuck, he muttered, as a flash of lightning blazed through the sky, followed quickly by the loudest crack of thunder yet, making him jump nearly out of his skin. His thumb found the underside of his chin, something he realized he hadn't done in weeks, so much so that the usually familiar ridge of the scar there, the one that normally caught his thumbnail so satisfyingly, was hardly there at all. How indescribably inopportune. Resolving to redouble his efforts, Remus bent down and tried to tip one of the trunks over and up the stairs, wondering if he could just roll it up step by step, listening with pernicious resignation to the contents clatter and crash about. With deep and profound regret, Remus thought it sounded as though water had leaked in through the seam and was now also sloshing from side to sodden side. How absolutely regrettable. He felt the bolt of lightning in the air just a hair's breadth before it struck the station's weather vane above, and he tasted the metallic static on his tongue right as a deafening clap of thunder knocked his teeth together horribly. He stumbled, misjudging the step on which he stood, and fell down towards the pavement. He felt his knee connect painfully with the sharp edge of the bottom step, and he just managed to protect his face from hitting the wet ground by throwing out his wand arm to brace himself. The trunk rolled and crashed back down the steps, thudding to a halt just behind him. There was another crack of what Remus thought was a second round of thunder, and a flash of what he assumed to just be more lightning. But to his utter confusion and immediate terror, he was nearly flattened. This time, the assailant turned out to be a giant triple-decker purple bus with glaring headlights that had unceremoniously hopped the curb and come to a screeching halt just in front of the station steps. An enormous splash of gutter water had drenched Remus further, sending him scrambling up the steps to the platform, his heart pounding in his chest. He had just barely managed to pull himself out of the way, swearing loudly at no one in particular. He could hear a muffled voice on an intercom emanating from the bus. Welcome to Mariton on Marsh, home to the Bell Inn, where the 1947 Goblin Settlement Act was repealed, leading to several skirmishes across Cotswold. The door to the questionable bus creaked open on its hinges, and an old man toddled earnestly down into the street, looking queasy and tired. "'But, Mr. Bloodworth, your stop is next, I promise,' called the same voice from inside. 
Mr. Bloodworth, apparently, grunted dismissively as he hiked up his collar against the wind and rain. Not spending one more minute on that death trap with your damned history lessons, I'll walk. With the decisive flick of his wrist, he transfigured an old daily prophet into a green umbrella and shuffled off into the darkening night, muttering mutinously to himself. A woman with messy blonde curls, barely contained beneath her uniform's hat, shook her head in exasperation before looking out at Remus. Fine weather we're having here, aren't we? Oh, Merlin, did Ern nearly run you over? She asked, taking in his sopping appearance from where he stood like a startled and probably feral-looking alley cat on the steps of the station beside the two toppled-over trunks. Turning back, she shouted at the driver, Ern, you menace! I told you to watch out for stragglers on the curb. Do you want the ministry breathing down our necks again? Turning back to Remus, she put on a kind smile and said, Sorry about that, love. You ready to go? Excuse me? he asked, his voice high and incredulous. She pulled her purple coat around her more snugly against the gust of wind that blew the rain sideways and cocked her head. Well, you called us for a ride, didn't you? Remus wondered if maybe he was hallucinating. You did call for the night bus, didn't you? Stuck out your wand hand? She held what Remus supposed was an imaginary wand and shook it in the air in demonstration. It was as though a light bulb had gone off for Remus. A sudden, brilliant light bulb. The night bus! He'd heard of it, of course, from his dad and all the times Peter had taken it during the summers. But as with many things in the magical world, it had never really seemed to be a real option to him. Hun, she prompted. Oh, Remus started. Yes, absolutely, yes, let me just... Oh, no, no, she blustered, coming down the steps and into the rain. Let me worry about the trunks. You just get on board and find yourself a spot. There's one just behind Urn if you don't mind a front row seat. There you go. She chivvied him up the steps, and with a flick of her wrist, the trunks flew up off the ground and followed them inside the bus, as if they weighed nothing at all. In the surprisingly cavernous interior, there was an odd mix of twin-sized beds and plush armchairs with disgruntled and startled occupants, all jammed to the front of the bus as if they'd all slid violently forward when the great purple monstrosity came to an abrupt stop. A few side tables were scattered, some toppled over, and there was a strong smell of cabbage from what looked to be someone's broken jar of sauerkraut spilled on the floor. The other patrons of the night bus were moving their respective furniture back to a more respectably distant space on the floor, and a few casting grumpy sticking charms to their beds or chairs. He heard similar scrapings and mutterings on the decks above, and looked around for an empty space. An old witch in a tartan cloche muttered under her breath as she repaired the broken sauerkraut jar and vanished the mess from the floor, but left the pervasive sour smell in the air. As he had been promised, there was a patched and frayed black velvet armchair that had surely seen better days, but Remus wasn't about to complain. He watched the trunks get strapped into an overhead rack and hoped to the heavens that they wouldn't come tumbling down and crush anyone during transit. All right there? Sorry I didn't see you in the rain, you know. He heard an old wheezy voice from behind the wheel, and Remus looked to see a wan elderly man with large coke bottle glasses and wispy white hair ensconcing his head in a haphazard plume. It's all right, Remus nodded tenuously. He heard the woman click her tongue in disapproval as she checked all the occupants and finally came to stand before Remus. Now, my name is Marissa Maypole and I will be your conductor for the evening. Tickets are seven sickles. For two knuts extra, I'll bring you a hot chocolate. For four knuts, I'll bring you a hot water bottle and a toothbrush in the color of your choice. 
Where is it that you'd like to go? Um, Remus, Remus Lupin, he rushed out, already digging in his pockets for the sickles. He had to pick through which was wizarding money, which was muggle, and which were candies that Sirius had hidden in his pockets. And I'd like to go to, um, Godric's Hollow, please. Potter's Cottage. That's in the north. He handed over the seven sickles and thanked his lucky stars he had enough. Well, that's near dead last on our itinerary, I'm afraid. Just left Godric's Hollow not three stops ago. She smiled kindly before taking her place at the front of the bus and saying, Take her away, Ern." Having only ever really been accustomed to muggle forms of transport and understanding most wizards to be suspicious of things such as cars and undergrounds and stoplights, he was not anticipating the sudden, violent lurch of the bus as it shot forward at immense speeds, causing everyone's furniture to slide back several feet despite the renewed sticking charms. Rain lashed the foggy window, and Remus was horrified to realize that perhaps Ern didn't have as good of a handle on muggle driving rules as one should when operating an aggressively magical three-decker bus through the streets of small muggle towns and villages. The bus swerved and careened, feeling very nearly close to toppling itself over, and Remus felt immense pity for whomever was sitting on the topmost floor because even down here he felt his stomach roil uncomfortably. He wasn't even sure Ern could properly see through the haze of wind and rain and sometimes fog they sped through as the weak wipers struggled to keep up. Bushes, trees, mailboxes, and sometimes even whole houses jumped out of their way as they hopped curbs and cut across lawns. Remus was starting to shiver, from nerves or the fact that he was sopping wet he couldn't decide. Before and after each stop, Marissa spoke in endless excitement about the unique and obscure histories of the places along the way. Interesting tidbit about Tadcastle that we're passing through at the moment is that this is the home to the infamous Lich Borgo, that prompted the 1654 ban on magical creatures as seconds in wizard's duels. Now, the thing to know about wizard duel seconds is... Inevitably, each time she started a new tangent, several people would groan aloud. Nailsworth, Remus learned, housed the largest captive collection of exotic pixies. In Painswick, he discovered the licking of lecherous toads was banned for use at midsummer celebrations, owing to its tendency of causing outbreaks of incorrect prophesizing. And Remus began to wonder whether or not she was joking. A younger man with a boyish and clean-shaven face had come to sit beside him on the hunter green love seat, carrying with him a glass jar filled with soil, moss, and a little fleshy-leafed plant nestled in the center. This newcomer caught Remus's attention as he sighed in defeat at Marissa's most recent proclamation on toads. He was dressed in an old tweed suit, much more suited to his grandfather's age than to his own, and his short blonde hair was topped with a black fedora, a copy of the Daily Prophet on the seat to his right. Remus watched as the stranger readjusted, seeming to dust the irritation of Marissa's litanies off himself, flipping open a thick, leather-bound book across his lap, and setting the jarred plant between himself and the folded newsprint. Remus looked back to Marissa, who seemed either oblivious to the fact that the passengers weren't enjoying the history lessons, or that she simply didn't care and was taking full advantage of her captive audience. Another bang and the furniture slid to the right of the bus. Now, here in Upminster, we know that Faramir the Squeamish developed his centaur hair infusion after the unfortunate transfiguration of his mother into a marble bust, owing to her dabbling in unregulated fairy contracts. 
Another bang, and the furniture careened to the left. The bus lurched again and tore around a corner at an alarming speed, causing his chair to swivel right around until he was unexpectedly and startlingly face to face with the young man on the love seat, his book still open across his lap and the newspaper unmoved from beside him, despite the chaotic motions of the bus, his glass terrarium still perfectly upright, a universe unperturbed. Marissa's voice continued in an uninterrupted litany of what Remus was starting to suspect was absolute hogwash. Here in Keswick, it's rumored they invented edible warts. The man in front of him snorted derisively and rolled his eyes. Edible warts, what slander. Remus huffed a nervous laugh while the man paused and looked him over, brown eyes and freckled cheeks hiding a crooked and kind smile. On the lapel of his tweed coat was pinned a boutonniere of small white flowers. They smelled of grassland and somehow inexplicably of summer. The young man closed the book in his lap gently, calloused fingers still thumbing the edge of the thick pages, as if an apology for the interruption. The cover read, Botanist, Grow Thyself, in a golden script across the worn dark leather. Beautiful climbing vines seemed to spread up along the spine in the same golden etch, their stems branching out into flowering buds and large heart-shaped leaves. Yorith, Yorith Shunpike, the man said, matter-of-factly, startling Remus out of watching the large buds blossoming into gigantic, wide-petaled flowers. He didn't offer a hand to shake, but Remus could see his old burns and scars peppered across his knuckles as he lay his hands gingerly across the book in his lap. Remus, he offered back. Remus Lupin. They stared at each other a moment, Shunpike still with his kind and lopsided smile, which was now joined by the slight tilting of his head. It was a fern, he said finally. I'm sorry, asked Remus, entirely bemused. In Keswick, the young man continued, crossing an ankle over his knee and leaning back just slightly, his dark trouser leg exposing tall woolen socks and the shining patent leather of his well-worn but well-kept shoes. It's home to a little-known fern by the name of Moonwort, common Moonwort, if you want to be technical about it, and Botrychium lunaria, if you want to be even more romantic. Yorith lifted the brim of his black cap slightly, his smile full and broad, entirely at ease as several side tables and a lounge set careened across the bus behind him. Remus felt himself sitting forward, entirely enraptured by the young man's dark brown eyes and high freckled cheekbones and the way he smiled as he spoke. They used to say it was a fern that was born of the love of the earth, a love of the depth and hardened stones and secrets far below us, a fern that still called to its love, that sang for the iron and gold that stays molten and fiery for the little flower that lives on the surface. The young man had Remus's full attention now, in a way so few had ever held it. He barely even noticed the woman with the life-size, entirely terrifying stuffed vulture on her hat, spinning away in her little camp bed as the bus took a hairpin turn. Long, long ago, before you or I were thoughts in our ancestors' minds, magical people settled at Keswick. They piled great stones atop the hills, and the moonwort grew thick and lovingly in their shadows. They'd find gold and iron in the soil, and the magic would be kind and forgiving. Spells you cast in Keswick, they used to say, they'd carry across oceans. They'd be molten in your lover's dreams. Yoroth's smile was impossibly wide and captivatingly bright, and he seemed to sing with the thought of the small plant that grew in the shade, 
You ever want to confess love, kid? Go to Keswick. Write letters in ink dipped in the stems of moonwort. Leave them gold and iron and other metals of the earth. Tie that stem about your wrist. You'll see. No man will ever leave you. The moonwort will see to that. He winked and stood, the night bus screeching to a halt. Edible warts, Maypole. He slipped a coin in her jacket pocket as he passed. How could you? And then the young man, Yorath, we misremembered, he said, was gone, off into the night. Welcome to London. Make sure you have all your belongings. Mrs. Twilfitz, please be careful on those steps. Remember the last time. There we are. After the last passenger had disembarked, Ernst slammed on the accelerator, causing Remus's black velvet armchair to topple backwards, throwing him bodily to the floor. In the commotion, he could hear several shouts and curses. Writing himself, he gripped the arms of his seat as the bus lurched forward. Despite being the last passenger left on the bus, Marissa began a monologue about the 1852 Vampire Convention in London that resulted in 423 deaths. The minutes and hours seemed to slip by slow and thick like molasses. He wasn't sure how long he had been on the bus, but they'd come and gone through at least two dozen towns and villages at that point, all with obscure and fascinating histories that he surely wouldn't remember. His eyes were heavy and scratchy, his mouth tasted like copper and sawdust, and his hands and feet were cold and clammy. He knew he should try to sleep, but amorphous and poorly described thoughts of serious black and dire misfortune and grave danger and all sorts of terrible things were plaguing him, keeping him just at the edge of a disorganized panic and reluctant consciousness. Several times he was jerked awake from nodding off as Ern shifted gears and the bus jumped over speed bumps or a roundabout meridian. Remus eventually did drift off at some point, in a disjointed and unrestful sort of way, only to be shaken awake by Marissa, he was sure mere seconds after. Mr. Lupin, dear, your stop is next, she said, seeming far too cheery for having been awake all night monologuing odd historical facts, which, if Remus thought hard enough about it, might have been entirely made up on the spot. Even with this warning, Remus wasn't at all prepared for the final sudden screeching halt of the night bus, and he fell forward, hitting his already bruised and battered knee on a cast-iron bed frame that had been rolling by. Pulling himself up on shaky legs, Remus limped his way to the door, bidding Ern an earnest farewell on his way out. Marissa deposited his trunks on the cobble walk in the darkness and gave him a little ironic salute. Cheers! Cheers, Remus responded weakly as the doors began to close. Before the bus tore off into the night, he heard Marissa's voice on the intercom, explaining to no one, Godric's Hollow, famed for the birth of Godric Gryffindor, is also the resting place of the Peveril brothers, thought to have evaded death himself. And in the next moment, the bus was gone. The potter's cottage was set back behind a hedge of lilac in full bloom, the heavy blossoms swaying gently in the early morning breeze. The little cast-iron gate with the gold lettering squeaked in mild protest as Remus pushed it gently open, and, despite his caution, several dogs broke the silent tranquility of the neighborhood. Remus proceeded to wrestle and fumble with the trunks as quietly as possible, dogs booming loud warning barks from yards all down the street, trying to push and drag them through the narrow entry into the front yard. After hitting the sore spot on his knee twice and cursing Salazar's braided beard, he slowly and gently closed the black iron gate behind him, feeling haggard. 
The stone footpath to the veranda swayed and curved, lined thick with lavender and azaleas cascading over themselves. Violas and violets spilled out into the walkway, and as he stepped along, the faint, bright smell of mint rose to meet him. From what he could see in the dim veranda light, the lawn was a thick carpet of clover and dandelions. The house itself was large but modest. It was a two-story with an A-frame roof and a large veranda with a swing. The facing was covered in thick green ivy, almost entirely occluding its brick substrate. The curtains were still drawn, but beyond the deep maroon fabric covering the front windows, Remus could see flickers of light and the shadows of movement within. As he approached the door, he could hear robust and jovial singing emanating from inside the walls ensconced in ivy, and Remus was incredulous to hear such liveliness at near 5.30 a.m., or what he considered to be an ungodly hour. But with a fondness he couldn't deny, he recognized James's voice instantly, and similarly couldn't help the smile that broke his weathered and worried features. He recognized the song, too knowing it to be one of James's rallying morning tunes for when they were slow to wake in the dorms or needed a boost before an exam. He knocked timidly at first and received no response. The singing continued. He knocked a bit more firmly, squeaking out an awkward, Excuse me? Remus knocked again, more loudly and assertively this time, and declared in a much more ringing tone, Hello? Anyone there? And he finally heard the singing voices falter. Before he had a chance to raise his fist to the whitewashed door again, he heard footsteps and several clicks of a locking mechanism before the door cracked open, revealing Mr. Potter with a raised eyebrow and a curious countenance behind round tortoiseshell glasses. Uh, I'm sorry to bother you, sir, but... Oh, you're here for James. Come in, come in. I didn't realize he'd invited anyone, and the house didn't let us know you were here. Come, you're just in time for breakfast. James, you absolute niffler, come greet your friend. Mr. Potter truly looked like a lankier, taller, and grayer version of James. They both had the same effortlessly windswept hair and light hazel eyes, both with a matching dimple in their right cheek, and he wasted no time in ushering Remus into the front hall of their home. No hesitations, no questions asked, his large hand firm and guiding on Remus's shoulder. The only noticeable difference between Mr. Potter and his son, aside from age, was that Mr. Potter had the swatty appearance of a professor or learned academic in his argyle sweater vest and velvet house shoes, whereas James always looked prepared to jump on a broom or wrestle a hinky punk. James, Mr. Potter called again with a laugh in his voice when James continued to sing at an increasingly higher pitch, clearly not having heard a word his father had said. The singing approached them through an arched doorway to the left as Remus took off his holy and worn shoes, placing them with a small flicker of embarrassment next to the neat rows of well-cared-for loafers, boots, and wellingtons. James circled the corner and stopped dead in his tracks when he saw Remus, his botched soprano dying on his lips. Remus! he positively screamed, hurtling towards him down the hall with such intensity that Remus was a bit concerned about the floor's structural integrity. James launched himself, pajama-clad, right into Remus's arms, wrapping him tightly in a hug, yelling into his ear much too loudly. Remus felt himself instantly melt into the safety of his friend with a grateful laugh. Mr. Potter slipped away in the chaos of the reunion, humming along to the song that Remus had interrupted. "'But we're serious,' James asked, pulling away, his face falling a bit. Remus sighed. "'That's why I'm here.' 
James's eyes were worried, and he looked as if he wanted to press. But instead, after looking Remus up and down, he said, Come on, let's get you fed first. The kitchen was open and spacious, if a bit cluttered. There were houseplants sitting on piles of recipe books, jars of pickling things lining the counters, stacks of papers covered in handwritten notes, vases filled with fresh flowers dotting the surfaces and shelves, fruit baskets hanging from the ceiling filled with bananas and apples and lemons, several loaves of freshly baked bread sitting on the stove, and a pan of scrambled eggs balancing precariously on the hob. The table in the middle of the kitchen seemed a bit too large for a family of three, but Remus didn't have time to think much about it before he was being pushed into a woven chair, a steaming cup of tea placed in front of him. After a summer with nearly no fresh milk, Remus nearly wept at the joy of a milky Earl Grey in his hands. It was much too hot to drink, but he sipped it anyways, grateful for something to do. He found this welcoming atmosphere entirely unexpected and a bit overwhelming. James and his father danced around the kitchen, fetching and placing things on the table in front of Remus, who continually asked if he could please help and was repeatedly told, in no uncertain terms, absolutely not. Mr. Potter hummed good-naturedly as he prepared the food, and James sang distracted and broken lyrics as he rushed about, grabbing colorful plates and decorative serving dishes. A stack of steaming flatbreads was revealed from under a terry cloth, and a pan of scrambled eggs was placed directly before Remus. Chutneys, fresh fruit, yogurt, and a large crock of soft butter were all set down, and before Remus could protest, Mr. Potter and James began ladling heaps of food onto the patterned plate before him. Through his own mouthful that he'd grabbed from the pan, James explained, These have spiced potatoes in them, tossing two flatbreads onto the pile of eggs on Remus's plate. You can't start your day properly without mango achar, Mr. Potter said, spooning a generous helping, followed by what he exclaimed proudly to be homemade yogurt onto the flatbreads. Mr. Potter smiled easily, and the deep lines that punctuated his grin were so different to the worry lines that creased his own father's brow. Remus surveyed the mountain of food before him and the eager faces of the two Potters before asking, Shouldn't we wait for your mum? Oh no, James laughed. Mum doesn't get up for ages. She's a night owl. If we waited for her, we'd be eating breakfast just before dinner. That was all the permission Remus needed to get to work making up for a summer of meager portions and hungry nights. The potters watched him out of the corner of their eyes, not so subtly adding bits of food to his plate as he worked through the helpings. You'll love this, Remus. Or here, try this. Hogwarts doesn't know what spices are. And you haven't lived until you've had my dad's sourdough. We're all punctuated with the spooning of even more food onto his plate. And so it went until he was positively fit to burst. So, Remus, Mr. Potter started, after Remus had leaned back in the woven chair, nearly panting with the fullness. He laced his fingers beneath his chin and looked kindly over the rim of round spectacles that sat low on his nose at Remus, who stifled a belch and did his best to sit still. Mr. Potter reminded Remus of Dumbledore, almost, with a scruffy stubble in place of a long beard, though with similar serene ways and a piercing gaze. It was in the way it felt as though you were being x-rayed and properly seen, observed with the intention to understand. I thought I'd heard from James that young Sirius was staying with you this summer. Remus nodded, feeling suddenly uncomfortably full and regretting his second, third, and fourth helpings. 
He let his hands fall into his lap and dropped his gaze to the half-eaten potato-stuffed bread on his plate. What happened? James asked with a pleading note. And Remus looked up into his hazel eyes, a moment that held an entire understanding. Those bastards, James growled, slamming his fist on the table. James, his father warned gently, a seriousness crossing over his features. Sorry, Dad, but they are, James protested. You don't know what they've done to him. Mr. Potter didn't respond to the assertion that he didn't know what Sirius had been through in his family life, but rather looked to Remus again and asked, If you don't mind telling us, Remus, do you mind explaining what has happened? Remus sighed heavily and looked about the room, avoiding the moment when he would have to explain. This is why he was here, after all, but why did it feel so hard to tell Mr. Potter? His mum showed up while we were at work. Remus fiddled with the cloth serviette on the table and didn't look at either of them. They had an argument and she cast a spell on him. I don't know what it was, but he just got in the carriage and left. Didn't take his trunk, didn't take anything. His mum was terrifying. He didn't even say goodbye. His voice wavered embarrassingly and he felt his face flush warm and red. They were quiet for a moment and then Mr. Potter leaned over and squeezed Remus's shoulder. Thank you for telling us. We're so happy to have you here. Mr. Potter pulled his wand out of his pocket and pointed it to a calendar on the wall, one that was filled from margin to margin with cramped writing in various colors and scripts. Some things circled or underlined and said, Shadala. In small purple ink, Remus saw the words, Remus arrives, appear under Wednesday, August 7th, and with it, several items on the calendar rearranged themselves. Looking pleased and running a weathered hand through his silver-streaked hair, he smiled and said, There now. James, why don't you show Remus to your room? I'll send up the trunks and we'll chat about this with your mom later. James looked for a moment like he wanted to press the conversation about Sirius, to stand up and demand that they make a plan to rescue him, but something unspoken passed between the two potters that Remus didn't quite understand. Then James nodded resolutely thanked his father for breakfast, gave him a kiss on the cheek, and led Remus out of the kitchen. The whole interaction was so, so nice. It was sweet and healthy, and as kind as all relationships with one's parents should be. And that, more than anything Remus had experienced in the last 24 hours, felt like a punch to the solar plexus, knocking the wind right out of him. James led Remus back out into the front room up a flight of stairs and down a brightly lit hall, the early morning sun casting itself across the wooden floors. He pushed open a door to the right, and Remus followed him into a large open room with slanted ceilings and a big trundle bed pushed up against the wall on the far end. James had begun a rambling tour of his bedroom that Remus was only partially listening to. There were Quidditch posters and sheets of parchment on nearly every available bit of wall space. The messy desk in the corner was overflowing in letters, parchment, and inkwells. The Hogwarts map was pinned to the wall above it, and above them, on the ceiling, were several paper kites and model brooms, all charmed, it seemed, to fly in circles above their heads. It was chaotic and warm and inviting in all the ways that James himself was. Remus was relieved to see the trunks already waiting for them beside the bed, and he sat gingerly on one of them folding his hands in his lap, letting James' excited rambling wash over him. 
In the middle of a story of how he won one of the flying kites on his ceiling at a local muggle fair that his dad had then charmed to fly, James pulled out his wand. He tapped the polished mahogany to Remus's knee, whispering one of Sirius's oft-used healing charms, tapping on more cuts and scrapes from his troubled evening and arduous journey. James eventually ran out of steam, and they sat in silence for a while. Right, mate. Start at the top. What the bloody hell happened? Remus took a deep breath, his thumb finding the underside of his chin, and proceeded to unload every detail of his troubles, all the fears and worries, the carriage, Walburga and her terrifying ways, getting fired, taking the night bus by accident, everything. James listened carefully, periodically swatting Remus's hand away from his chin when it wandered back. He watched him closely, and when Remus had emptied himself of all of the words and thoughts ricocheting around his head, they sat in silence for a long while. She must have used an unforgivable on him, James said, his voice sounding bitter and harsh. A what? Remus asked. An unforgivable, you know, he repeated, and Remus shook his head, yet again faced with the glaring holes in his magical understanding. Crucio, Imperio, Avada Kedavra, the unforgivable curses. One causes unimaginable pain, the other makes people do your bidding, and the killing curse? All of them carry a life sentence in Azkaban? Imperio, yeah, that's it, Remus said, remembering the moment Sirius's anger died and the quiet, serene, obedient child that took its place, climbing into the carriage with his mother. Must be, James nodded sagely. There's no way Sirius would have gotten in that carriage willingly, or, you know, quietly. Remus let the fear he'd been carrying with him since Sirius had left spill out into the space between them, where they had come to sit cross-legged on James's bed. What if he doesn't come back? Don't say that, Remus, James admonished, sounding robustly confident. Worst case scenario, we'll see him at the start of term. But Remus could see the doubt that clouded his eyes. He didn't take his trunk, James, Remus faltered, his throat constricting around the terror he was feeling rising in his chest. He didn't want to imagine a Hogwarts without Sirius Black, and he didn't want to face the reality of a life without him either. Oh, Remus, it's going to be all right, mate, James urged, pulling him into a hug. Remus leaned into him with limp limbs and a trembling lip and finally let go. He finally stopped clinging to his adolescent bravery and tenuous confidence. Exhausted and scared, Remus cried and cried until he had nothing left in him, until his body was spent, propped up against James. In the wake of his grief and exhaustion from his journey, he gave up even trying to stay awake. He didn't remember falling asleep or being wrapped in a blanket, but his last memory before slipping off was of James lying behind him with an arm around his shoulders, keeping him safe. Remus awoke in an unfamiliar room, momentarily confused. The afternoon sun streamed through the window beside the bed, cooking him beneath a quilted blanket that smelled oddly like his four-poster at school. His mouth somehow tasted worse than sawdust, and his head felt thick and heavy. He could hear raised voices downstairs, and his stomach sank with impending dread. It sounded like two women were arguing, and Remus wondered where James had gone. Getting out of bed, he noticed a piece of parchment left on his trunk, a note written in familiar hand. Eat, sleep, and then shower. Use whatever you want in the bath, second door on the left. 
Find me after. James. The bath was much like the kitchen, a bit cluttered, but lovely and well lived in. There were half-burned candles along the edge of a claw-footed tub, and a large bookshelf beside the window filled with wizarding novels. With plants hanging around the tub and a large selection of bathing and hair products lining the shelves, Remus had a sense for what a family home should really feel like, to have endearing evidence of its occupants scattered about. He avoided looking at himself in the imposingly large mirror as he undressed, but the mirror commented on the state of his hair all the same, telling him which shampoo to use for what it called limp locks. Washing and dressing as quickly as he could, not wanting to use too much hot water or the potter soap, feeling uncomfortable and worried about his presence here, he avoided the mirror's advice to curl his hair and tiptoed back to James's room. Remus nervously paced and picked at his chin until he finally had enough momentum to carry him down the stairs. As he went, he was able to take in more of the house, noticing as he did the pictures of James and his parents when they were younger, lining the stairwell, of faces he didn't recognize and large family gatherings of many smiles, of the ferns planted in little ingresses, their leaves reaching out to brush against his arm, of the vibrant embroidered tapestries that hung over the daubed white plaster walls. Before he came around the archway to the kitchen, he heard what he assumed was Mrs. Potter saying vehemently, I told you weeks ago, Fleamont, weeks. I wanted them to come here, and I should have listened to my gut for Salazar's sake. Min agreed with me, but Dumbledore? She faltered when she saw Remus standing meekly in the entryway. The three of them were sitting around the kitchen table, each with a cup of tea in hand, and when she locked her eyes onto Remus, her face broke into a delighted yet worried smile. Like her husband, Mrs. Potter's face showed evidence of the years she'd spent smiling and laughing, and she greeted him with genuine enthusiasm despite the creases in her brow. Remus, we're so happy that you're here, she exclaimed, getting up and walking towards him. She wore a modern and stylish mauve jumpsuit, sleeveless, with a thick black belt around her waist and which tapered into expertly fitted wide leg pants. Her long graying hair fell messily around her shoulders, and Remus could see the shimmer of dangling gold earrings peeking out from beneath her locks. She wrapped him in a tight hug, smelling like rosemary and morning glories, and holding on for what Remus considered to be too long. He noted how short Mrs. Potter was compared to her husband and son, as her chin barely reached his shoulder. Mom, James groused, embarrassed and exasperated as Remus looked to him with wide eyes. We've talked about this. You can't hug a stranger's child. Oh, hush, she said, finally releasing Remus, who was now blushing scarlet, and being pulled along to sit beside James. We were just discussing the situation, she explained, as she moved to fix Remus a cup of tea. Owing to her petite height, she had to stand on her tiptoes and leverage herself on the edge of the counter with a grunt to reach into the cupboards to pull out a pack of biscuits. Mumfire called Professor McGonagall, and they had a row just now, James snickered. Remus cocked his head, not understanding why this was funny. Min and I go far back, Mrs. Potter explained, with a grin that held several stories. Back to our ministry sit-ins and protesting days. We were still students at Hogwarts then, you know. Back when we were rebels and up to no good and fighting the good fight, as all young people should be. The usual, you know. But Remus could honestly say that he didn't, in fact, know. 
This image of a young Minerva Min McGonagall holding picket signs at a protest clashed incomprehensibly with the stern, rule-abiding woman he had grown to know, love, and fear. Mrs. Potter set down the tea and plate of biscuits in front of Remus, reclaiming the seat beside her husband, whose hand trailed up her back in a familiar, almost unconscious gesture of tenderness as he smiled doatingly at her. Ah, those were the best of times, weren't they, Effie? He asked with a wink, and James rolled his eyes at his parents' open display of affection. Mrs. Potter smiled coyly but didn't respond to her husband. Instead, she turned to Remus, her green eyes bright and focused. I wanted to bring you boys here the moment I heard you were together, but I was told I was overreacting. I see now that I was right and will in future be more persistent. Mr. Potter smiled more broadly and planted a soft kiss on her shoulder. Does your father know you're here? She asked Remus without preamble. No, not particularly, Remus admitted, abashed. He was busy when I left. James looked down at his hands, and Mrs. Potter nodded, taking a sip of her tea. I'll write to him and let him know that you've arrived safely, and that you're welcome to stay for the rest of the summer. And any holiday from here on out. Any time, actually, no questions asked. Do you understand? Remus nodded minutely, wondering, in a dizzying turn of events and anxieties, if he was somehow in trouble for not coming sooner. That's all right, then, she nodded, looking satisfied. Turning her head, she looked over to the crowded calendar on the wall. Now, boys, do you have plans for this evening, or would you like to join me at tonight's poetry club? We'll be tackling racism in modern feminist circles tonight. I've penned something absolutely cutting on anatomy dogma. Remus cast a wide-eyed glance at James, who groaned and said, Not poetry club, Mom. I hate listening to Mrs. Bagshaw's haikus. Last week's about quill patents? Horrible. Those haikus are a far cry better than Mr. Dillard's spoken word performances about rocks, she said derisively behind her cup. You'd think a prompt on environmental stewardship would provoke something a little less literal. Exactly. Who wants to hear about poems about rocks? James shook the table dramatically. And who wants to feel garnered to take political action to poems about rocks? His mom laughed, full and bright, her gold earrings shimmering in the ambient light. All right then, my young critic. Boys, Mr. Potter interrupted, in lieu of pottery, can I ask you for your help with the Angoras this evening? He removed his tortoiseshell glasses and began to clean them on his argyle sweater vest. The rabbits are ready for a brushing, and I'll need help with Beetle. You know how she feels about grooming. And I don't mean it as a punishment for her escaping and absolutely demolishing the cabbages. It really is just inopportune timing on her part. We have yarn to prep for next week's knitting circle. Uh, Remus gaped, and Mrs. Potter stood from the table suddenly, exclaiming, Look at the time. You gentlemen enjoy yourselves. I have poetry to hear and last-minute verses to compose. Before sweeping swiftly out of the room with a fond laugh, she kissed all three of them on the cheek in turn and wished her husband luck on his endeavors with the aforementioned beetle. That night, and for many nights after, Remus tried hard not to think about how acutely he missed Sirius, nor the comfort of another body in the bed beside him. He tried not to feel immense rejection when James, very kindly, pulled the trundle bed out from beneath his own and proclaimed that Remus could have a whole mattress to himself. And he tried hardest most of all not to lay awake in the night staring at the ceiling and wondering if Sirius was all right. 
Much to Remus's endless confusion and horror, he learned that James awoke every single morning early, every morning before the sun no less, to sing loud songs with his dad, to bake bread, and to do crossword puzzles. And every day he tottered downstairs after a buoyant James for a day filled to the brim with Potter household activities. Mr. and Mrs. Potter both hugged him each day upon greeting him. They asked him how he slept, while they made him tea, and they listened to him with an undivided attention that Remus often squirmed under. They asked him about his dreams and his hobbies, his likes and dislikes, and how he wanted to spend his day. Remus tried very hard to give his wages to Mr. Potter to help ease his burden on the cost of food and board, but he was waved away with a perplexed expression and told, that's not how things work here, Remus, but thank you for the offer. After the first few days, Remus was surprised to realize that he needn't worry whether or not Mr. and Mrs. Potter would come home in the evenings either, because Mr. Potter was almost always home. More often than not, he was predictably reading in the sitting room, where the walls were covered in shelves and rows and stacks of books. He'd sit with a pipe and a cup of tea, his tortoiseshell glasses slipping to the end of his nose as he reclined in his deep leather armchair, an ankle resting on his knee. Oftentimes, while deeply concentrated on the pages before him, a set of knitting needles would click restlessly in the air beside him, turning spun and gory yarn into thick sweaters and decadent scarves. Other nights, Mr. Potter could be found late in the evening ensconced in his back garden shed, one which he'd turned into a potion studio, wearing a tidy apron and yellow Wellington boots as odd smells and strangely colored smoke wafted out into the summer air, rabbits hopping dutifully between his booted feet. If Mr. Potter wasn't in any of those places, then he'd certainly be in the kitchen, kneading bread, packing garden veggies into mason jars, or mixing herbs into homemade compound butter. Once Remus had found Mr. Potter building a late summer fire in the back garden, a large cauldron dragged out from the shed. When asked what he was doing, Mr. Potter explained as he rigged up the cauldron and dropped bricks of silver into its empty belly, a few fluffy rabbits hopping closer to inspect the commotion. An old friend of mine, Belby, wrote to me, asking my advice on a potion they're devising, and I thought the best way to test the theory was to put it to the test. James and Remus had looked at one another with raised eyebrows and left Mr. Potter to his odd tinkering and slipped back inside. If, on the odd occasion, he wasn't home, he came to tell them, much to Remus's surprise and confusion. He would explain where he would be, how to reach him, and when he planned to be back. Every time it happened, Remus felt a twinge of something that felt a lot like jealousy. Mrs. Potter, on the other hand, was often out of the house, owing to her busy and rather eclectic schedule. But fortunately for Remus and his ever-present worries and pervasive fears of being left alone to his own devices, the calendar in the kitchen always told them where she was. Mondays, she met with her Witches for Civil Liberties organization, where she volunteered as treasurer of the organization. She and Mr. Potter both were part of several ministry societies and social justice groups, frequently discussing politics and concepts of social equity and mobility that Remus didn't quite understand. They said that while they disliked the ministry itself, it was important to stay involved in government, to exercise one's right of having a voice. Every third Tuesday, Mrs. Potter attended a modern interpretive dance seminar for muggles, which was held at the university in the town over. She admitted to not being much of a dancer, but insisted that it kept her involved in local muggle happenings and up to date on important world events that she wouldn't otherwise hear in the prophet. 
Not to mention, interpretive dance, she said, was apparently an absolute riot of a good time and a novel way to flex her creative urges. Wednesdays was the Bard of Badby's gathering, where she would listen to Mrs. Bagshot's unpublished works and the deep artistic poetic expressions of other talented folk. Thursdays simply said, still lives. Fridays, she entertained a wizarding book club in the sitting room with titles such as An Apparition to Anaheim by Frenchie Fay, Romance and Loathing or The International Fairy Smuggling by Linda Bagman, and most peculiarly of all, on Friday, June 24th, Bringing Up Werewolves, a guide for parents with lycanthropic children, a public service guide published by the Canadian Ministry of Magic. Most endearingly of Mrs. Potter's entire schedule, were her Saturdays that she dedicated to time with James. Written in bright blue ink were activities such as pottery circles, walks in the park, day trips to London, or list of muggle movies, wood carving workshops, and something called rock hunting. And every single day, written in green ink, there was a little space blocked off that read studio, where Mrs. Potter was home, but she would be unavailable and in her studio upstairs, a place which Remus had yet to venture or to be invited. Dinner time, Remus came to learn, would prove the most challenging part of staying with the Potters. It wasn't that they all held hands and sang songs before eating, which was, for Remus, odd. It wasn't the fact that the Potters were nice and kind and wholesome and they all clearly loved and enjoyed one another, that they discussed conflicts openly and with respect for each other, giving and taking and making compromises with care. It wasn't even something they called gratitude circles. This is where they went around the table taking turns, discussing things they were grateful for, what they hoped for in the future, what they wanted to work on, what they learned that day, the good things they wanted for others in their lives. It was the fact that dinner became a forum where they were honest and open with James about anything he asked them, and they never expected James to carry the burden of their own feelings. It was a distinctly foreign and overwhelmingly uncomfortable experience. At the end of his first week at the Potters, James said to Mrs. Potter at at dinner, just after the gratitude circle, Mom, I don't like it when you call me Jamie in front of Remus. It's embarrassing, and it doesn't make me feel good anymore. Just so, right there in front of Remus. Remus, who felt himself sinking lower in his chair with each passing second. Remus, who had dropped his fork, expecting a row to unfold and wondering if he should take cover under the table. But most shockingly of all, Mrs. Potter looked thoughtfully at her son, and said, Thank you for telling me that, James. I didn't realize it bothered you. I won't do it anymore. Thanks, Mum. James smiled, stuffing peas into his face. Is it okay if I call you that in private still? She queried, and Remus felt like he must be in the twilight zone, for who spoke this kindly and directly to their children? Perhaps he had been run over by the night bus, and this whole experience has been a dream cooked up by his dying brain. James thought for a moment, chewing his peas. I think I've outgrown it, actually. That's fair, she offered, her smile wistful and almost bittersweet. At this point, Remus's ears started ringing and he didn't hear what James had said in return or what Mr. Potter said after that, because whose life was actually like this? Who on Odin's green earth lived like this, spoke like this? Remus tried to push away the discomfort of their very loving family life, not wanting to consider why it twisted him up on the inside to see, and instead allowed himself to enjoy a second helping of mashed potatoes. August 20th, 1974. 
Their list for school arrived one morning while Remus was pouring a healthy helping of cream into his porridge. Mrs. Potter had left to meet a group of anarchic alchemists for coffee, and Mr. Potter was beside him, reading what looked to be a homemade tattered gazette called The Quibbler, with a furrowed brow, tortoiseshell glasses balancing precariously at the edge of his nose. Finally, James said with excitement, handing Remus his letter and tearing open his own. What rubbish is this? James cried after a moment. I didn't sign up for divination. Reading down his own list, he was horrified to see that in place of elenquency, he'd been moved to divination as well. Bullocks, me too, Remus whinged. Hey now, Mr. Potter consoled. Divination isn't all that bad. I remember going to school with Mary Laveau's second cousin, Claire, and she was a dab hand at Gaulish Tarot. Her cards never lied. James gave his father a withering look that elicited an amused chuckle from the man as he turned the page to his gazette and continued reading. Look at the back, James grumbled. Dear student, in order to meet your course load requirements and accommodate your schedule, you have been added to divination in light of elenquency being cancelled. Please see the course material list for further information. Deputy Headmistress Minerva McGonagall. They both groaned, knowing that if Minerva McGonagall herself put them in divination, it was because there was literally nowhere else to go. Oh, look, Dad, James handed over his list. Professor Vector wants a dozen rolls of parchment just for his class. So that's that then, I guess, Mr. Potter said, tossing the quibbler aside and enthusiastically reading over his son's school list. Today's as good a day as any, I'd say. Shall we go on a little excursion? The flu trip to the leaky was quick and only moderately nauseating. With wand in hand, Remus stumbled out of the fireplace, coughing around a mouthful of soot, followed quickly by James. They waved their hellos to Tom the barkeep and trailed out after Mr. Potter into the alleyway at the back of the pub. Beside the overflowing dustbins and a stack of discarded cardboard boxes of Bertram's butterbeer mix, the walls were covered in old water-damage adverts for things such as Madame Volta's gnarly nasal removal and make broom handle splinters a thing of the past with Healer Hassan's splinter splendor. Hey, Dad, look, it's yours, James exclaimed, pointing to a simple ink illustration of a woman with long, lustrous hair and a twinkle in her eye that looked suspiciously like a young Mrs. Potter, with a header that read, Tame that wild mane with sleek Easy's hair potion and scalp treatment. Two drops tames even the most bothersome barnet. Use as directed. Caution. Unique results with redheads. Yours? Remus asked, as Mr. Potter smiled and pulled his wand from his pocket. Yeah, that's Dad's product. He makes it, James beamed. Remus nodded, impressed, and watched in fascination as Mr. Potter carefully tapped a series of bricks in the wall. Well, I don't make it personally anymore, he explained as the bricks started to pull back and reshape themselves into the archway that exposed the packed and rambling street beyond. The apothecary here in Diagon makes it for me. But despite his interest, Remus wasn't really listening. He was instead feasting his eyes on all the little shops and signs and open displays of magic on the bustling little street beyond, with a swirling feeling of enchantment and an ache for having missed out on this for so long. All right, you boys head off and get into a very small and reasonable amount of trouble only. I'll start the shopping. Mr. Potter waved his hand at them as James grinned and pulled Remus away, pointing excitedly at the display in front of the Quidditch supplies shop. 
Wait, Mr. Potter, I need to exchange my money first, Remus tried. Don't worry, I've sorted it out with your father, Mr. Potter said in a tone that was unusually stern. That money is yours for Hogsmeade. You earned it. Oh, hello there, Artemis. Before Remus could protest or inquire further, Mr. Potter had turned to greet a bent elderly wizard in a mustard yellow robe, leaning heavily on an equally as crooked walking stick, who shook his hand gleefully. Come on, Remus, James insisted, pulling him forward by the sleeve of his overly large green sweater. Bye, Dad. I'll see you at the Quidditch shop in an hour, boys, yes? Mr. Potter called after, a smile in his voice. Of course, James yelled, already several shops away, weaving in and out of the crowd of milling shoppers, a startled and agog Remus in tow. James narrated their entire journey towards the large and imposing white marble building at the far end of the cobbled street, which towered over the smaller, more homely shops in its shadow. If you're ever in need of proper dragon leather, Pericles is the only place in London worth a sickle, Dad says. James explained with great confidence, nodding to the beautiful array of supple leather gloves and boots in the window, a ginger cat lounging in the display. Further along, they passed a window with messenger ravens for sale, and James whispered to him with a derisive snort and a shrug. Dad says only fools think they can tell a raven what to do, but some people can't resist trying. They passed vendors of all sorts, bartering their wares from copper cauldrons to magical crafting woods, effigy makers, and magical sweet treats. The smell of various street foods mingled in the air and permeated their wanderings. In one moment, they smelled caramel and popcorn that made their mouths water, and in the next, they had to cover their nose against the pickled cod on a stick, the proud vendor proclaiming loudly that it boosted magical ability if eaten every fortnight. Ugh, James choked. I'd rather be a squib, thanks. Beside the apothecary, they ran into Davy Gudgeon, who had just managed to get his hands stuck in between the bars of a rather disgruntled fruit bat's cage, and was apologizing profusely to both the bat and the irate shopkeeper as he was scolded. In front of the antique bookshop, the beater from the Slytherin Quidditch team was looking over their list for the coming school term, and James, smirking, bumped his shoulder on the way past, earning him a scowl. Exchanging muggle money at the bank was a quick affair, albeit a strange one. The goblins weren't exactly what Remus would call good at customer service, though they did critically examine every coin and note placed before them with intense scrutiny. At the end of it, however, he did manage to get just enough galleons to hopefully get him through the year. Coming back down the great marble steps, still laughing about Davy Gudgeon and wondering if he'd been freed from the bat cage yet, something caught Remus's eye, something that quickened his pulse and forced him to do a double take. Horses, great black beasts with artfully braided manes and neat cobs, standing obediently in formation before a shining black growler. He threw his arm out to halt James in his musings about Davy and stared. What is it? James asked before looking out and seeing for himself. Is that? The door swung open and Remus watched, his stomach disappearing entirely, as Sirius Orion Black, dressed in embroidered wizard's robes and black leather shoes with silver buckles, climbed gingerly down to the cobbled pavement before turning and speaking to someone still within the carriage. Remus had already started sweating and his pulse was racing and he could feel James's magic radiating off of him in thick, worried waves. They watched from their innocuous vantage point as Sirius bowed dutifully at whoever was within the carriage, 
before the doors closed and the horses lurched forward, pulling the growler away and out of sight. Sirius had straightened up, turned, and began walking towards the bank's entrance. In other words, right towards them. Sirius? Remus and James dashed forward. Sirius, James called again, but Sirius didn't respond or even really acknowledge that anyone had called his name. His hair was pulled back into a low velvet bow at the nape of his neck, and his fingers were decorated with green gemstones and ornate silver rings as he continued his stroll up the steps, silver buttons gleaming in the late morning sun. He strode forward purposefully, completely oblivious to his friends. Sirius, what happened, mate? Remus asked, blocking his way up the steps any further. Are you okay? Sirius looked up with a placid, vacant smile and eyes that looked off into the distance. Oh, hello, gentlemen, he greeted in unfamiliar tones, like something one might hear on a customer service line when phoning a bank or a hotel. And how do you both do today on this fine morning? Sirius, it's, it's me, it's Remus. You were kidnapped from work, remember? Kidnapped? Sirius laughed, a polite little tinkling sound that sent fear twisting up Remus's spine. Oh, heavens, good sir, whatever do you mean? He's still imperious, James said with what sounded startlingly like heartbreak. She's had him under this spell the whole bloody time. Well, Sirius bowed, if you gentlemen will excuse me, I have an appointment to tend to. Mother sent me on an errand, you see, Sirius was saying, his eyes and smile still vacant beneath the saccharine politeness of his words as he turned away from them and resumed strolling along. Your mother? James spat with incredulity, scrunching his face up in disgust. Oh, now I know you're in deep, mate. We can't let her take him back. We just can't. We might never see him again. Other patrons of the bank were walking past, and a large man in sweeping silk robes with gold embroidery stopped, interrupting them to greet Sirius, who was deferential and bowed low. Good to see you filling your father's shoes, lad. You look more and more like him every time I see you, the man said proudly, ignoring James and Remus entirely. Sirius smiled his vacant smile and said, Why, thank you, Mr. Foley. That is a most kind thing to hear. Remus couldn't agree more that they had to get Sirius out of there as soon as possible as they watched their friend betray himself in this display of fealty. This was it. It was now or never. As soon as Mr. Foley was down the steps and out of earshot, without thinking, without even stopping to try and plan a course of action, Remus and James each grabbed an arm and hoisted Sirius off the ground. I dare say, he protested feebly. Unhand me, sirs. Gold awaits no man. His body was completely acquiescent in their hands, and it made Remus furious. We have to get off the main road, James muttered, nodding awkwardly at passers-bys with a nothing-to-see-here sort of grimace as they hurried back down the bank steps and further up the road. James? Remus? came a voice from behind them. For but a moment, Remus feared that they'd been caught red-handed trying to kidnap their imperious friend, and nearly cursed James when he sat Sirius down and turned towards the voice. Pete, James called, sounding surprised and relieved. Oh, I've never been so happy to see you. Peter was coming out of Fortescue's with a large cone of strawberries and cream already dripping down his hand in the warmth of the day. Good day to you, fellow pureblood, Sirius greeted, wriggling in their grip, and Peter's mouth dropped open with an incredulous expression. Help us, will you? Remus urged. For a moment, Peter looked between his ice cream and his friends with a torn and forlorn look in his eyes before sighing, 
tossing it aside and coming to help them lift Sirius off the ground. But what happened? Peter grunted as Sirius began to flail in their grip. Imperiest, long story. But first, we need somewhere to hide, James pressed, now struggling to hold on to Sirius, who was beginning to fight back. Oh, down here, Peter suggested, pulling them off the main road and down an alley. It was narrow and winding, but there were far less shops and people to see what they were up to. Sirius punctuated their kidnapping with a few, How very dare you, and please unhand me, gentlemen, this is very unbecoming. All the while, the three of them whispered furiously between themselves about how in good Godric's name they were going to break the curse under which Sirius was trapped. For surely, as soon as they set him down, he'd go toddling right back to his captor. We need a place to sit and think until we can figure out what to do, Remus suggested, looking around with mild panic. The shops down this particular alley were darker than on the main road. The patrons scuttled nervously beneath cloaks from shop to shop, and the window displays were dusty and macabre. Stuffed crops peered out at them from under one and a stack of python skulls from another. Where the bloody hell are we? Remus asked through gritted teeth as he spied an old woman watching them much too closely from beneath the shadowed awning for his comfort. Bullocks, Peter, did you bring us to Nocturne Alley? James groaned. Oh, my dad's gonna kill me. Sirius began twisting in their grip, arguing more vociferously. Now really, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure, but I must away. Oh, here, let's go here, Peter exclaimed, pointing at a sign a few paces ahead. Inner Eye Mystic Readings and Tea Shop. Peter, we don't need a tea reading, we need oof! And Remus doubled over after having been kicked in the gut by Sirius's thrashing. Sirius managed to wrestle from their grip and sprinted a few steps, yelling, Make haste! before being tackled to the ground by James with a resounding thud. Oh, no, you don't, you'll thank us later! grunted James as he pinned Sirius to the cobbled street, both of them panting. After a few moments, James put Sirius in a headlock and dragged him back to the group. Sirius, quite out of breath, stated in his disgustingly polite tones, Duty calls, you abhorrent fustilarians. Yeah, sure. Yes, let's go to the bloody tea shop, Remus agreed, and the three of them began to push and pull Sirius towards the doorway. The white arched framed entry stood out against the dark sooty brick backdrop of the building and was covered in blackened carved markings that Remus didn't have the time to appreciate. Most prominent and easy to discern among them, at the very apex of the doorframe sat a carving of an evil eye, an old cunning folk symbol that even a muggle would recognize, used in days of old to ward off dark magic. At this point, Sirius was becoming more aggressive in his protests, and stronger too. Soon they'd be making a proper scene in the street if they didn't get somewhere safe. I must really be going, Sirius yelled, elbowing Peter in the face as they dragged him towards the entrance. Time is gold, you hearkeners of poor tidings. Away with you, unhand me. At the doorway, he gripped the frame, his nails scuffing the thick lime wash over the wood, with surprising vigor and refused to let go. His tinkling laugh strained now. Mother calls, you know, must be off. I shouldn't be seen with riffraff. The three of them were grunting with effort. James swore under his breath and Remus wondered aloud through gritted teeth, how was he this strong? From behind them, they heard a wafting mystical voice. Welcome, welcome to the inner eye. Please come sit, I'll prepare tea. Remus was absolutely incredulous about the idea of being offered tea at a moment such as this and wondered who the bloody hell could be so tone deaf. 
Excuse us, miss, we'll be with you in a moment, grunted James as he tried to loosen Sirius's grip from the doorframe. Sirius somehow managed to bite his forearm and James yelped. Oh, you bloody wanker, you are so lucky you're not you right now. I see the fates have brought you here for an important reason, gentlemen. Just be sure you mind the teapots, she warned ominously, and Remus could hear the tinkling of glass and the whistling of a kettle. The smell of bergamot and cinnamon permeated the air strongly, and he was even more aghast. Honestly, could this woman not see that they were preoccupied? Finally, the last straw came when Sirius, in his indignation, demanded, Unhand me, you half-breed! Remus growled in anger and leaned in with his whole body, the weight of all three boys pushing their hardest to get Sirius through the door of the inner IT shop. Sirius's clawing fingers gave way, taking with them several splintered chunks of the white doorframe. They all toppled suddenly beyond the threshold, past the woman in long, sweeping shawls with large, protuberant eyes that were magnified by her enormous, thick-framed glasses. With an echoing crash, they piled against a bookcase full of various teapots, several of which, along with a vase of long-dead flowers and a crystal ball, all came toppling down onto the dog pile in which they finally came to rest. From the bottom of the pile, after a painful-sounding thunk and a yell of unbridled frustration, Remus heard the sweetest sound in the world, that of Sirius Black, possessed of his own righteous anger and mind, yell, What the actual fuck? pick a place to start and then go from there and I feel like no matter what happens we'll probably end up at Grindledor so that's how we know it's time to stop right inexorably pulled yeah <laughs> to the inevitable stopping place to be fair actually before we start we should are we plug... starting with Grindledor yeah we should okay. plug that fic 35 owls oh yeah everyone if you're interested in Grindledor read that fic it was so good yeah it was really good it like kind of fucked me up a bit it might be my favorite fic ever Oh, wow. That's resounding. Yeah, because... (laughs) Because I feel like it was... It's, like, canon compliant, right? Mm. But it... And it's, like... I feel like it explains so many things that you didn't even think about in Mm. the background of Mm. of canon. Like, it just... It expands, in a way, on those two characters that just... It's really satisfying. Mm. Someone was saying that ending... The ending they found really sad. Do you find the ending sad? Yeah, it was super sad. I didn't think it was... Oh my god. It's because you're dead inside. No, I I didn't think it was sad. I think it was like a well-explained resolution for how it happened in canon. That doesn't mean it's not sad. Those aren't mutually exclusive concepts. It was still sad. It was super fucking sad. I got to the end and I had to take a nap. I was like so depressed. But could it have happened any other way? No. I, f- I felt satisfied by it. No, I was, I was sad. I was, like, fucked up sad at the end. <laughs> I was yeah. like, why did you why did you say it? It was good, and then I was mad at you for sending it to me. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was like, Maybe people fuck? shouldn't read it. Then. No, it was good. It was good. Just, you know, pick a... 
a day where you can cope with that. That's actually, maybe we can talk about that for this discussion. Because, like, I find that satisfying. Mm. When we end this fic, I'm going to find it satisfying. I don't want to think about that yet because we can't we can't write this whole fic together and get to the end and disagree on how it ends (laughs) like we can't do that (laughs) we like go all the way to the end a million and a half Mm. words or whatever it's gonna be yeah we can't get to like and the last chapter takes like six years to write yeah because i'm fighting with you the whole time the whole way through just have it be a happy ending and you're like i can't I can't, I can't cope. <laughs> I can already yeah. see you being like, yeah. it has to be happy. <laughs> well, they, they're both dead, so it's not gonna be. But that's what I was saying about mm. the 35 Owls pick. Like, even though they're... It's not a spoiler, because in canon, they're both dead yeah. by the end of canon. But yeah. they're both dead at the end of the fic, but it's satisfying. Agree to disagree. <laughs> but then, what are we gonna do about our fic? I don't want to think about it, because we haven't even decided how we're, like, rounding that off. I know how I'm going to round it off. Well, you haven't told me yet. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we shouldn't do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, this is not the right forum. <laughs> but I think, okay, so they're, yeah, they're both going to die. But yeah. you can have a satisfying ending with that. Yeah. This doesn't mean it's not sad, though. Just because it's satisfying doesn't detract from how sad it is. That's fair. But I don't, I don't consider it, like, tragic. We're two different people. <laughs> the whole story is tragic. But that's the whole point. While yeah. they're alive, it's tragic. No, it's tragic when they die, too. <laughs> it's all tragic. Oh, I don't know. I haven't... I don't have a good argument for why I feel that way, but I don't feel like it's tragic after they're dead. Because they're dead? Yeah. <laughs> and they can't self-reflect on it? <laughs> well, and, like, there is... Do you think there's resolution in their storyline? In canon. I'm, in not, canon? Not in our story. In canon. I don't know. Judging by Remus's Talks. background mental breakdown <laughs> through the rest of the series, I'm going to say no. There that's wasn't so, resolution. That's so true. Like, that whole end of the series for him is... He's, he's like, a fucking wreck. I have to write that. I know. I have to get into that headspace. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm coming from Sirius' pers- Sirius's perspective. Yeah. Where he's, like, exonerated. Yeah. And, like, Remus... And he, like, ends on a fighting good note, almost, with his relationship <laughs> with Remus. And then Remus has to go on without him. <laughs> this is why I keep telling you, you have to live till you're a hundred. <laughs> That's not gonna happen. Can you just... just, just okay. Just... Okay. <laughs> Realistically. Okay. <laughs> I mean... Lie to me. <laughs> I can't. Gryffindor? Oh, Gryffindor? <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, but like, realistically, I lost at least 20 years in my teens and 20. Maybe 30. You know, your heart can only take so much. <laughs> and your brain. <laughs> you just eventually want to turn that shit off. <laughs> That's like me tomorrow. <laughs> Keep it together. Okay. I can give you to maybe 60. Okay, good. I'll take it and then I'll work from there. Okay. It's fine. I'll All just right. like, once you get there, I'll just drag you along. <laughs> cool. Sounds good. Great. With more fic, right? Yeah. That'll be when we're writing yeah. the Grindelwald. Yeah, because we'll be doing and this for the rest of forever. Every yeah. chapter, I'll just be like, just let me die already. Yeah. <laughs> I've had enough. I'm satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
What was I gonna? This was leading to something. I don't know. I had a point in the ethers. Oh, yeah. If you find the canon story mm. of Sirius and Remus satisfying, even though it's tragic until they both die, because mm. Remus is part. He's alive after. That's tragic. That's fucking tragic. I find his storyline very unsatisfying. Yeah, his his is. It's Sirius so is unsatisfying. Sirius is is unsatisfying too, but like. Like you said, he goes out with, like, a fighting. Yeah, you know? exactly. Who says that line? He would have died. It's Hagrid, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. He would have, he wanted to That's how he would have wanted be. to go, yeah. yeah. Do you think that's true? A little, yeah. I 100% think A hundred percent. hundred fucking percent. If he had died, like, of a stroke in yeah. Grimald Place, and it was, or, like, pneumonia, something yeah. slow and terrible, he would have been... So furious, mad. Furious. Like, furious. I think he would have just committed seppuku in the background. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, as soon as he noticed he was going down, now, like, nope! Not doing this shit! Yeah. 100%. Whereas Remus died a slow death. Even though he dies in the Battle of Hogwarts. Yeah, yeah. But, like, all from the moment Sirius dies until Remus says, that's a slow death. And he has a kid in that time. I think, do you think that's just our perspective, though? Because people who ship Remus and Tonks see that as, like, a him, redeeming relationship. Yeah, him having a second chance and him having a kid. I'm and, I'm sure it was a second chance, but like it wasn't. Because then <laughs> but then think about it, because when Harry resurrects them mm. with the resurrection stone, Remus says his son will know that like his father was yeah, you know, a good person based yeah. like, more or less, you know, that he died fighting for him to have a better life. Yeah. Like, do you find that satisfying? Kind of. Not really. <laughs> Not, not no, really. No, not really. He was only excited to have a kid once the child was born. And then, like, he had, like, what, a week? He spent so the that... child's only a week old? Yeah, Teddy, no. Teddy was only, like, a week old. From Shell Cottage to the Battle of Hogwarts. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was, like, real young. And Tonks left. Tonks fucking left. Like... Did she, like, express me as a, me as, milk and, like, yeah, save me it? Me as like, a birth happened? worker is, like, lay the fuck down. Like, I threaten my clients. Like, you're not allowed to get out of bed for two weeks. You're you can shuffle to the kitchen and make tea. That is it. <laughs> and, like, go pee and stuff. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, like, yeah, you're going to have a uterine prolapse. Yeah, like, that's, all I, that's all I thought oh when God. I was listening to those books. And it's like, yeah, Tonks is fighting in a battle. And I'm like, you had a kid six days ago. You need Gravity is not your friend. You got to lay down. Yeah, because she's actually not there for, like, the fight. She's there for Remus. Yeah. That's a bit weird. That means she chose Remus over her child. Yeah. But, I mean, like, I think her, like, love for Remus was entirely driven, like, it was, what am I trying to say? Like, it was illogical from the moment go, because you could tell he, would like, wasn't capable of committing in the way that she wanted. He wasn't even interested. He wasn't even interested. He was just, like, traumatized, you know? That's, I mean, that's how I read it, like, the Me whole too. time. It was Me just, too. like, he was traumatized, and he couldn't actually, like, give her the relationship that she wanted, but she loved him anyways. And, like, to preface this discussion, like, I understand there are people out there who ship Remus and Tonks, mm. and who, like, see this as a beautiful relationship, and, like, mm. I, you're more than welcome to read that from the text. It's just not what I got from yeah, it. Yeah, it's I definitely think. not what I got. I think maybe because I view it through a lens of trauma and gay. <laughs> yeah. It's a very specific lens that I view the world through. <laughs> Yeah. 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 <laughs> the lens? Yeah, like the lens. Like that that's it. <laughs> so Yeah, I didn't find anything about that satisfying. Mm. Like, like and it's true and it's sad though because it 
it could it sort of should be do you find the potter's life and death like satisfying you mean like james and lily yeah yeah yeah. i mean obviously it's like tragic but like it's almost i don't know they went into hiding no i don't find it satisfying they went into hiding they couldn't be around their friends it's not like they both died in a car accident you know but james like and lily both Mm. their last actions alive mm. are for the love of someone else and for yeah. the chance which is so of someone else to survive. Yeah, which is uh, very in character. But I them. find that satisfying too because mm-hmm. like that, to me, that's like I think they would think they died a good death. Yeah. I don't think Remus would think he dies a good no, death. No, Remus is like I mean, he says he so when he's resurrected. Yeah. He's like, mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Mm. And, it's, and it's sort of like you can tell that because when they're resurrected, James and Lily are the ages that they died. Yeah. Sirius and Remus are both much younger. It's because, yeah. like, they're their happiest... I imagine that yeah, like yeah. they're the happiest versions of themselves. Yeah. Or, like, who they wanted to be. Yeah. Or, like, what memories they wanted to keep. Mm. So, like, James and Lily reached that age, and yeah. they were the happiest they've been. Mm. Remus and Sirius didn't. Yeah. Like, both of them wished that they were younger versions of themselves. Yeah. Maybe to, like, make different decisions. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to ask about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's sort of, I think, our discussion about where this fic is going. Yeah. Okay, I don't want to make people think we won't have a happy ending. I think my version of a happy ending and your version of a happy ending must meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah, they're going to have to meet in the middle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It certainly won't be the same like Blood Magic. Yeah, I don't think it'll have like the same tidy ending as Blood Magic, but it'll be interesting. <laughs> I think that's all we can say. Yeah, and the yeah. ending has to be post their deaths. Yeah. Yeah, because the ending will be post their deaths. But that's like, significantly. I, but I also imagine that will include a time, like, where... So they, they will be cognizant and aware and mm, making decisions mm. post-death. Yeah. And, like, exist in a form. Mm. Okay. So... Yeah, stop giving it away. <laughs> no, no, because people yeah. won't continue to read if we're going to end this million-word thing of just they die... And then Remus drags himself along yeah. and then dies. Yeah, well, I think I think we've made it pretty clear in the tags that this is, like, canon compliant. We're just filling in the that's, gaps. That's You true. know, like, you know these characters die at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. I have a feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm calling this now. I hope that, like, later on I can take, like, a voice clip of this. Yeah. Like, maybe we'll just flag it now. Cool. Flag. Excellent. That, like, we're gonna get to the... The the series goes like to the veil, or like we're gonna get to that part, and you're gonna be like, can't we just change it? <laughs> can't, <laughs> can't we just? Can't, can't we? Can just, we just? Okay. We could just write it differently. Different. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe that veil is just a portal, not a veil, or like you know, like yeah. somehow make it so yeah. that like they don't die. Yeah. And that like Remus just fakes his death at the battle to escape. Yeah. yeah. Talk. Yeah. Yeah. And then they just, like, live happily ever after yes. in the Forbidden Forest, the forest. like, <laughs> several hollows away from Draco and Harry, and they just don't know. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's cool. Cool, that's the ending of the fic. Like, yeah. there we go. Yeah. I, I, I'm calling it now yeah. that it's, uh-uh. that's going to be part of uh-huh. your process. Uh-huh. I call my therapist. <laughs> your therapist who, like, is forced to read this fic yeah. and understand your life and, like, your process. <laughs> Like, when she read Blood Magic, and she was like, Did, have you ever considered you might be autistic? Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh. <laughs> Did you see someone commented and was like, um, did you mean to write Remus autistic? Mm. 
Yes. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, I just wrote me. Self-insert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, self-insert. <laughs> yeah. Take with that what you will. Yeah. I, I yeah. love that comment, too, because it, it's like, you know, like, when, when you're reading something, this happened to me recently, mm. actually. I read a, a fic someone wrote um, that centered around HIV, mm. which is, like, a world I'm so familiar with, mm. and, like, a lot of the specific struggles mm. and, like specific language and specific like thoughts people yeah. have are I like find, really little details like such tiny satisfying details to then when you see it written somewhere you feel that like resounding oh like i know that yeah I'm, i like i i know that thing mm. so it was so cool to see someone else like yeah i have that moment, <laughs> that moment. Yeah. I, 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 see, <laughs> I see this yeah <laughs> i identify with mm. this yeah yeah that was really cool yeah Okay, speaking of your writing, Remus, mm-hmm. let's actually talk about this chapter. <laughs> okay, yes. Okay, um, I had a whole list of questions that I wanted to ask you about this chapter, but I think... Because mm-hmm. prob- we recorded it yesterday, and I had a complete nervous breakdown, and then we had to wait for the discussion till today. Did you have a... Oh, you, you didn't have a ner- Did you have a nervous breakdown? I, it was more like a frustrated... Yeah, it was a frustrated breakdown. It was more like the resilience... <laughs> <laughs> the resilience meter was at, like, zero. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. But yes. you did it. I did. I fucking did it. And the reason that we have to record, or we had to wait to record, mm. was because we have to record at night, because we're in the city at the mm. moment, and there's a lot of, like, ambient city noise. Yeah. Which, you you won't hear our frogs, you yeah. won't hear the forest, mm. like, that's our normal background noise. Now you can just hear the, the dog, dog snoring. snoring. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not kicking him out. Sorry, it's everybody. Precious. It's the heavy breathing in the background yeah. is the dog. Yeah. <laughs> It's not, a, not one of us. Yeah, well, uh. <laughs> you know, give it time. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask this chapter, why was writing Remus at the Potter's house so uncomfortable? Or like, <laughs> why does Remus get so, un- you, I mean, you write yeah. a very uncomfortable Remus. What about that? Like, why is that true? <laughs> the simple answer, I think, is profound childhood trauma. I think the more complex answer. But that's like the obvious yeah. answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like the 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 more like in-depth answer is growing up whenever I was confronted with examples of what like healthy family structures looked like. Yeah. It made my skin crawl to no end. Like it just made me unbelievably uncomfortable. Why? To be around. What was that discomfort? Um, just knowing that I had to go back home to deal with my fucking family. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is the discomfort... This this is not my reality. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. Because I had a very similar experience. I didn't get uncomfortable Mm -hmm. about it, though. Like, I have, like, such distinct Mm -hmm. memories. And it was mostly, like, when I was old enough to have enough, like, self-reflecting power to be like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, you write, like, no one's gonna fight about this. Yeah. this isn't gonna devolve into a screaming... that's interesting. You're, what's happening? Like, huh. and then the feeling that I got from that was just like, the person that, mm. whose house I'm at will never understand me. Yeah. Because how could you, how could you grow up in this and then like understand when I try and explain yeah. something about what, what it's like for me. Yeah. So it was like a, a sense of disconnection and totally. like sadness, I totally. guess. Totally. <clears throat> And and I, I totally agree with that. And yeah. I think that's actually like a fundamental part of his relationship with James also is yeah. like James is such a good friend, but at the end of the day, he's not really going to understand 
what Remus has gone through, which is part of the reason why I think Remus and Sirius connect, or, yeah, Remus and Sirius connect so much because they both, like, come from just, like, a shitty background. Yeah. Like, it's different, but it's traumatizing either way. And you know what's funny about that, too, is that immediately makes me think that if they had asked Peter or let Peter in more, they would have connected with him the same way. Because we we haven't explained it really in detail about, Mm. like, Peter's background life. We just drop hints that he's not a very well-loved child Mm. or he's a very lonely child. Yeah, he's he's very lonely and his mom is not really available. Yeah, and his his connections with his family feel very temporary, or his the people yeah. in his life feel very temporary. Mm-hmm. So that's like the glimpse you get. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, if they had bonded with him in the same way mm-hmm. and invited him to open that door, yeah. they would probably see very similar things. Totally. And Absolutely. I think yeah, and I think that yeah, we're trying to write Peter because it's canon compliant, yeah. right? Peter will eventually end up betraying them. Yeah. So like, how do you go from this? sense of like closeness yeah. and family and like understanding each other and James caring about all of them so much mm. to like one of them betrays the other. Yeah. And like I think one of the small subtle things when you look at friendship groups like is there equal sharing amongst yeah. them? Is and there... I don't think there is. Like no. I think Peter is like he's part of their group because he's you know he's in the same dorm as them. Yeah. You know and James is like team player so everybody's part sure. of the team now you sure. know yeah. even though they don't have like the same like real emotional connection as the other ones. Or like especially kids like James I get I used to get the the vibe of like you should just assume or like they just assume that um, everyone's household is kind of like theirs totally. until they're proven wrong. Yes, exactly. So, like, Peter why would he proven. asked about yeah, it? Yeah. What, you know, why would mm. he, you know, he's 14. Why would he be like, so does your mom love and care about you as, like, a yeah. full functional human being and support your emotional needs? Like, he's yeah. not going to ask that. No, because, like, his life is, like, he's so secure in his life and he yeah. just assumes that other people have that security Yeah. until, like, you know, the outlier would be... Yeah. An abusive home. Exactly. When really it's like three out of four in that dorm room. <laughs> yeah. How many do you think in Hogwarts is So many. Whole? Just like, so... I mean, just look at, like, demographics, like, like today. I mean, if I just think of my friend group alone, there's one person who had a stable family life. Yeah. One. You know? Yeah. Like, that's... <laughs> I think if I think about it, I would have assumed yeah. many people had stable family mm-hmm. lives. But, like, once you actually open the door there... Yeah. Stability doesn't look the same. Like, totally. You know, the, the there are so many issues. Mm-mm. You know, like, I remember, like, finding out one of these kids from, who came from a home where I was, like, really jealous of. Because mm. I was like, that looks... Great. So nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then finding out that, like, their parent had a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. And that, like, they had an extremely unstable wow. inner home life. Yeah. And then you're like... Oh, appearances are extremely deceiving. Yeah. Pretty much everyone is struggling. You cannot assume, mm. you know, and I found that out from a really young age too. So mm. I just sort of was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then like the more time you spend with people, yeah. like you end up finding out that like everyone puts on a show of stability, totally. you know, mm. how real it is, is something else entirely. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So except for maybe the Potters because yeah. <laughs> they're actually stable. Yeah. <laughs> The, there were so many small, subtle things in that chapter mm. that really spoke to, like, what it's like to live with unstable parents. Like, particularly the detail about knowing where the parents are. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a household where one or both of them would disappear for not 
hours, but, like, days, weeks, months. Mm -hmm. So, like, that detail about the calendar was, like, wow, that would have been cool. Yeah, (laughs) that would have been nice. Would have been, yeah. That's really, yeah. Wow, yep. Do people do that? (laughs) Like, apparently they do. Yeah. That was, like, an intent, because I was just, like, what are all the things I hated about my childhood? And then, like, I was just, like, what would the potters do instead? And I was, like, they'd let their kids know where they are. That's what they'd do. yeah. 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 And, and I, Remus being like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you're going where? Yeah. Oh, so oh. you're coming back at 4 p.m. Today? Are you sure? <laughs> Should I assume it's 7? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah. That, that detail was, like, really nice mm. to put in because it really speaks to their stability. Yeah. Um, And I love the way you described the household as well. Just, like, a well-lived-in home mm. that's, like, welcoming to everybody. Yeah. That was really nice. They've just, like, collected things that they like and just enjoy their space. They're kind about of thing. to collect people. Yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah and they're very excited about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the only thing is, we are going to be canon compliant. Yeah, I know, and I don't want to talk about that yet, because I'm going <laughs> to weep. <laughs> yeah. Weep when that comes around, and I don't want to think about it. But don't you think that, like, the potters that we've written would be, like, proud of James. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think they're going to be... I don't, again, I don't think it'll be as sad. I think it'll be satisfying. It'll be satisfying, but I'm sad about it. I could be both. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll just put it in my chapter. Okay, yeah. I mean, I can't write that. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, what else did I want to, to ask about? Um, what did you find the most difficult part of writing this chapter? Um... Because we went through a huge editing process. We mm. don't always do that. I always feel like we do go through a huge editing process. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you write a chapter and it's like, I read it and I'm like, that's awesome. Maybe cut down this or mm. do this. And then you edit it. Like mm. this chapter, I was way more involved mm. in the editing. Um, I actually, I did, I struggled writing James's home life. Because mm. it was so stable. And I kept thinking about my own parents and mm. being like, Oh, wait, they're not stable. <laughs> like, oh, wait, no. oh, wait, I can't use them as an example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who's stable? <laughs> trying to think of, like, imaginary examples of what, like, good parents look like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and um, what was your favorite part of writing the chapter? The ending. I love the ending. Yeah, the ending was my favorite. Like, Unhappy. Yeah, serious black, like, imperious. Just like, oh, how dare you? <laughs> Make haste! <laughs> and then James tackling him. So, I laughed so hard writing that. Like, I had so much fun. You actually had to stop recording. Yeah, I had you? to sit, Yeah, you had to leave the room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was too funny. It was too funny. <sighs> yeah, that was good stuff. I am super excited um, about the direction that we're going in soon. Um, when, now that Sirius is awake from the Imperius curse, and, mm-hmm. like, what's going to, like, follow from there. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited. And now we know that they're going to be in Divination this year because the Lincolnsea is canceled. You have been waiting, I've been waiting to write this. Since we, like, the inception of this fic. Yeah. 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 So I don't want to give away any yeah. spoilers. Mm. I'm not going to give away any spoilers. No, don't give any away spoilers other than Divination is about to happen. Well, they know that. <laughs> yeah. But. So Divination is happening and it's going to be a divination like never before. <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> Like so different, yeah. Just from Sybil Trelawney, so different, so different, and I'm so excited. Yeah, 
Yeah. I think you're going to have so much fun with this, mm. their fourth year. Yeah. Um, and we have, so the divination, and, well, or like various other things are going to happen where we're going to have multiple more original characters. Mm. And this chapter we saw a whole bunch of return of mm-hmm. original characters, mm-hmm. like Yorith Shunpike, who is one of my favorites. He's so precious. Yeah, he is very yeah. precious. And, um, yeah. There were a couple, I, I love the thing that we're doing now, mm. where like, because we did this a bit in Blood Magic also, yeah. where, like, you know, like, when you're building a fic of this size, mm. you lay a layer, yeah. and then you lay another layer, yeah. and then you start building layers, thinking about how those layers will become future... Like, themes. Themes and, yeah. and components and characters and, like, mm. like Easter eggs you're leaving. Totally, yeah. yeah. And it's it's wild writing it this way, because if you were to do this in a book, you write the whole thing... An editor reads it, mm-hmm. and, like, you can go back and change things, or you can mm. go back and say, like, okay, cool, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop hints here yeah. about this that happens later, but, like, we don't have that because we're posting it as we're reading yeah, or, or as, as we're, we're writing. writing. So, like, it's, it's a weird, different process yeah. of keeping track of, like, so many different things yeah. that we're, like, where we're trying to... It's totally. like doing world building, but, like, on a massive stage. Yeah. And it's really fun. It's super fun. I actually, like, I was thinking about it the other day. Um, and like, I, I love this writing style. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like if the skills that I learned doing this fic writing, I think would serve me really well if we wanted to write an original story and I would want to write it in the same way, like chapter by chapter and go as like, as we go along, because some of our best ideas come when we're like in the middle of brainstorming about what are we going to do next? Yeah. And then suddenly we're like, Oh my God, which like we never would have come up with if we had planned it from the beginning, you know? So again, my planning process, I try and plan, like Mm. I want to have a framework, Yeah, yeah. but like, again, some of the best things happen Mm -hmm. when we're like in the middle of writing a scene and mm-hmm. it's like okay well what if yeah like we had one of those we had more than one of those yeah. in this chapter yeah. specifically there are so many easter eggs in yeah. here yeah so like this many. this chapter is actually foundationally so important for the rest of the fic like there's there's yeah. gonna be so many things that like spawn from this yeah yeah actually yeah. a lot i'm and, super excited yeah me too yeah so what's coming next my chapter mm. I'm so excited. Yeah, this actually next year at Hogwarts is going to be super interesting because we're going to like change the direction a little bit. And yeah, and I think it's sort of funny because um, we're a little bit following canon mm. because if you think about it, the first three years, yeah, are the pre-war, yeah, stories. Yeah, they're the pre-war and the more children-oriented, yeah, stories. That's not necessarily like I wouldn't say our first three years are children-oriented. Yeah, no, but it's pre-war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like. It's very foundational. Yeah. Whereas from fourth year, yeah. so the fourth year in canon, the war really starts. Yeah. Because Cedric dies. Mm. And, like, you know, there's that whole culmination of, like, Voldemort mm. gets a body. Yeah. He's a real He's presence. back in action. Yeah. Mm. Like, he, the Death Eaters are reunited. Yeah. Like, you know, the Dark Mark burns and, and they are called to him and, like, all of this. So that, that creates an other, that creates an enemy, and yeah. then the war, like, spirals, and politically. Yeah. I mean... The and then tone... suddenly the entire series has, like, a specific aim, you Exactly. Know? And then you think about the difference in, like, the tone mm. between the fourth book and the fifth book. The fifth book is all about politics. Yeah. And all about, like, power. Mm. And, like, what power mm. structures look like. Yeah. And international relationships. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think... Yeah, I think we're doing a sort of similar 
pivot yeah. in the in the um sorry. What's wrong? I was making sure it was still recording. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. Um we're doing like a similar pivot where like we're turning from like the boys at Hogwarts mm-hmm. to like the boys in the wider context. Yeah. And I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm so excited. I think this has, like, been... I've been chomping at the bit to get to this, like, level of, like, content that we're going to be talking about. Uh, And it took so much groundwork to get there. I mean, this is chapter 22, and I feel like we've just now laid the groundwork. But it's almost the exact same in Blood Magic. We did, like... Yeah, it's true. Okay, no, but our chapters were so much shorter. They were. And we only did, like, maybe... Yeah, the first 20 chapters, because the first 16 are the Mm. first part. Yeah. So maybe the first 20 chapters are a lot of groundwork. Yeah, that's true. Even the first, like, 40. Yeah, some of my chapters in Blood Magic, though, were, like, hilariously long. No, but that's towards the end. That's true. Now I'm, like... We're we consistently... Yeah, we've consistently, yeah. like, tried to keep our word count average. Yeah. Which is, like, another, like, stylistic thing that we've tried to employ yeah. for, like, practical reading sake. But, but you know what's interesting, too, is that, like, as we're getting more, like, mm. digging into the story... Mm the time frame between chapters is contracting. Yeah, that's true, actually. Like, like, more is happening. Because think about it. Like, your last chapter took place over, like, two weeks, three weeks. Like a month, yeah. Not quite, because it's not September 1st yet. Didn't Sirius show up in no, June? No. no, your chapter Yeah. started August 7th. Right? No. This one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, sorry. I was talking about the... The last, last chapter, yeah. No, no, no. Because, like, if you think about the last year, last summer was all me. Yeah, In one true. chapter. That's true, yeah. And now Whereas it's... Now, become, so now summer's gonna be, like... Three. Three. Yeah. Two and a half, yeah. Yeah. So, like, the time is contracting, and I think it'll only get worse. It is only gonna get worse. Forward. Like, like this fic is gonna be a monster. Similar to canon, though, because, yeah. like, from fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, like, the books get big. Yeah. Yeah, because exactly. you have to start thinking about, like, things are happening yeah. faster. Mm. So yeah, there's all of that, all that and more coming up. Yeah, I'm super excited. I'm really excited too. What was your favorite part of the, this chapter? Aside from serious. Yeah, aside from serious being hilarious. The night bus. Yeah. I loved the night bus. I just. I loved, I loved when Remus yelled at his boss. <laughs> How satisfying! Oh, that. it was super funny. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he gets fired. Yeah. Yeah, he, like, deals with being fired. Yeah. Whew. From his only source of income. Yeah. To be like, he... I gotta get my friend! Yeah. <laughs> you son of a bitch! And Carl's just a dick. It's yeah. Fun. But then that also sets it up so that, like, he doesn't have an income source the next summer. Yeah. So. Exactly. Yeah. Again, this chapter is all about groundwork for mm-hmm. what's coming. Yep. <laughs> it's the a war. Fun... <laughs> <laughs> Grindledore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What do you think Grindledore is doing at this oh, time? Okay, in the seventies? Mm. That's a good question. Dumbledore's got his like strawberry blonde beard going on. Wait, so what what decade is their duel? Isn't it in the fifties? The fifties. Yeah. So he's so Grindledore's been Grindledore. Grindelwald has been in <laughs> Nomengard now for like twenty years. Okay. Yeah. Do you think they correspond? Absolutely. Of course. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> like they could quit. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Now we know we're at the end of this discussion because we're we've no, full circle back to Grindledore. It's, no, it's yeah. fine. Let's talk about the chapter. I okay. my favorite part other than serious was the night bus. Okay. 
Um, how did you find writing that? Um, a little difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because there's so many moving components. There's so many moving components. Yeah. And, like, I ended up rewriting it so many times that, like, suddenly parts that made sense two edits ago suddenly make no sense now and then having to continually go back to be like where are people's limbs yeah 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 Yeah. and you you created some great characters that we actually ended up deleting and taking out Mm. that i think we should bring back later yeah um just because yeah word count just so Mm. yeah well that and like you you want to keep focused on what's totally you know remus's timeline yeah, and I get sucked down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Which I am prone to do. Prone to do. Yeah, you love writing the, like, step-by-step. And that's oh, how yeah. he got from point A to point B. Yeah. You did so much deleting detail. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you wrote the first time they went to Hogwarts and you wrote, like, the boat scene paddle by paddle. Oh, yeah, no. The you whole thing. You wrote the thing. whole song. You wrote the mm-hmm. whole everything. And I, I had to like, write all of it. I was like, Because I was still thinking of Draco that whole time. And I was like, I gotta stop thinking about, like, 28-year-old Draco and I have to start thinking like an 11-year-old werewolf. And this is so difficult. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. really difficult. Do you ever miss, like, writing yeah. Harry and Draco? I do. Really? I thought about it this morning, actually, and I was like, oh. Maybe that we, story's done. Maybe we should write an epilogue, too. Okay. <laughs> like an epilogue part two. No, yeah. the epilogue was so perfect. Uh, it's so good. Let's not ruin we it. Would just Let's have... not do a JK. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Curse yeah. <laughs> child Yeah, no, 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 no. It's beautiful <laughs> the way it is. <laughs> no, but you know what you can write is the um, the one-shots, the side oh, stories yeah. we always wanted to. Yeah, like You could write true. Luna and Greg, mm. or... Um, Pansy. Yeah. Or Ginny. Mm. That would be really fun. Yeah. And then I could... Or you could write Hestia Neville. Oh, precious. <laughs> Thor. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. Yeah, it makes me happy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's stuff to have, like, that we could write about mm. there. Or we could just write one-shots of their daily life. Oh, <laughs> Like, the day, you know, like... <laughs> Blood magic-themed one-shots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, the day the porcupine actually gets in the fence. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh! I see. Or like twin- and Draco becomes like a crazed person running out in the yard in their underwear with a stick. Yeah, yeah. relatable. Yeah. yeah, or like the day like one of their thestrals dies. <gasps> Why would you say that? No, we can't write one shots anymore. You ruined it. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> or we could write like their adventures later, being like masters of death. Oh yeah. That'd be their vacation yeah. to like somewhere. <laughs> the river sticks. Yeah. <laughs> they can they can go through the veil. <laughs> Suddenly they're like, oh wait. Oh, huh. You know, if we What's can, back here? Yeah, if we can go there and back, should we just pop in for a bit? You know, let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't have anything else on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm here. Or for like that. him teaching, like Harry mm. teaching and Draco showing up like Something happened at the house. You mm. like lit the house on fire accidentally or something. Yeah. The dragon's yeah. back. The dragon's back. <laughs> we don't have wards against this. Help. You made it specifically so the wards he could get back in. What's <laughs> wrong with you? We have a thatched roof. <laughs> oh my god. <sighs> it's too real. <laughs> so we could go back and write that. Yeah, we could. It would be really fun. Mm. Or you could just do, like, excerpts yeah. of, like, things you didn't write. Like, 
episodes of Draco fighting with the unicorns. Yes. Yeah, like, all the things that I wanted to write or did write that didn't make it into the fic. Just, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, totally. I love that. We still haven't written, like, the first time they bone. That was a stylistic choice. <laughs> wow. Wow. Don't. Okay. Don't. If we're writing Look one shots, that has to go in there. Because it's, like, maybe it's, like, two years later. Yeah. And it, like, finally happens. Yeah. It would be fun to write. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we can write that. It's fine. Okay, pick that one or the Thestral Dust. Oh! God damn it. <laughs> Okay. You drive a hard bargain. <laughs> well, I know what's happening now. Um, okay. What was I gonna say? Yeah, I do kind of miss them too, but I love the the um, dynamics mm. of the four marauders. Yeah, I do too. I like, love it. For Drury, it's just the two of them usually. Yeah. I mean, there's Ron and Hermione and other people in the background. Yeah. But like, but like this same. like foursome group is really nice. Yeah, it was really difficult to write it first. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, I'm really getting into it. What's your deal? Oh, the dog is very snorty. Are you snorty? Okay. Um, what are we going to talk about now? Um, I wanted to talk about Mrs. Potter's schedule. and Still lives? Her. <laughs> Can we talk about still lives? Her, her still lives class. Which, um, but, can I spoiler that? Uh, yeah. Is it fine? I guess, yeah. Are you sure? So, Mrs. Potter enjoys still life painting, but specifically, this class is still life nudes. Mm -hmm. So it's just going to be like, nude people sitting, is it at their house? Okay, well, basically it's nude people sitting in a room and then a whole bunch of people painting them like Mm. you would a still life workshop. But guess who's going to that workshop <laughs> Yep, you guessed it. <laughs> oh my god. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm so excited to write that. It's not even fucking funny. Oh my god. I love Mrs. Potter so much. Yeah, she's lovely. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Potter. Mm. Yeah. Precious beans. Yeah. Mm. Both of them are really sweet. Mm. Oh, and you are super excited to write Pottery with the yeah. Potters. Pottery Potter with, with the Potters. potters. Yeah, I'm super <laughs> excited to write that. Which is like the Saturday activity. Mm. Guess who else is coming for that? You guessed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'll be just like when you come to Pottery with me in real life. Oh my god. No. <laughs> It'll be nothing Ex- like that. Except like, let's be Fewer, fewer anti vaxxers. Yeah. I hope. If you write them in there, I will be so mad. What's the wizarding version of anti What is the like, wizarding version? Like, don't take your potions. You basically wrote that with Fern. No, with uh, oh, Cicero. Yeah. What's her name? Yeah. Yeah, that would be it. God damn it. You already snuck them yeah, in without me even noticing. Absolutely. <sighs> okay. Yeah. No, but these anti-vaxxers are worse. They're way worse. They're terrible. Yeah, they're pretty bad. Look... If I have to hear about bleach as a cure for anything, except, like, you know... Yeah, stains on your <laughs> wine shirts, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna fucking lose it. I'm gonna literally yeah. fucking lose it. Mm. I'm so sick of people having no science education, or, like, having no... 
Well, I think it is just like a lack of science education, like fundamental basic science education. But that's not just, it's not just that. No, 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 that's the starting point. And then you throw everything else on top of that. But like the things that you have to throw on top of that include so much like bigotry in so many spheres. Mm -hmm. That like, how do you end up, how do you, okay, that's fine. We don't have to. We don't have to go into it on this podcast because there's probably people who listen to this podcast who are like, I also am anti-vax. And to them I say, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but no. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Uh, I had like a whole argument with one of the pottery people because the pottery people it's just it's terrible. just It's just rural mountain people who are very suspicious of everything that's science. Not everything. They're super keen to take really expensive homeopathy. That's not science. <laughs> okay. I Do you see what I mean? No. It hurts me. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I had a whole argument with someone who was trying to, like... Like, how can you come from a naturalistic perspective mm-hmm. and then try and tell me that you should take bleach for malaria and not plant derives medicines that have been proven to work mm-hmm. that and are the international are, standard yeah and given out by your doctor yeah there's a lot of hypocrisy there but th- like there's so much i don't even know like at some point you just got to bury the whole thing and leave yeah because that's yeah that's why when i go to pottery i don't i don't talk to anybody i sit outside yeah social distance by myself yeah <laughs> Make my pots. Even if there and wasn't COVID, like, <laughs> yeah. social distance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, for like your own mental health. Excuse yeah. me. be like, sorry guys, I gotta sit outside today. Got a cough. Got a- <laughs> and a fever. Don't come near me. No, because then they would be the people who would be like, we should all get it so we can be immune. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was suggested already. Oh, mm. good. Mm. <laughs> yes. Great. Excellent. Uh, yikes. Okay, anyway, so Pottery Group for the Potters better not fucking be like that. <laughs> pottery Group, no, we know what it's going to yeah, be like, no, and it's we... not going to be like that at all. <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. It'll be like my ideal version of a Pottery Group. Yeah, what, what wish, I wish that I had You know how, like, pottery group. when I wrote um, the group meetings for Harry and mm-hmm. Blood Magic, I was like, this is what I want group therapy to be like, but yeah. it doesn't exist in real life. This yeah. is just, like, my fever dream. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be this Pottery Group. Perfect. Yeah. I'm so excited I'm so for that. excited for it. Like... I'm you're so happy. Your therapist is gonna read that and laugh. Yeah, <laughs> and be like, <laughs> "This shame for you." Yeah, you're right. This definitely doesn't exist out there. <laughs> this is not what pottery group is like in reality. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Yep. Shame. Yep. 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 <sighs> okay. Well. Cool. That's that on that. Yeah. Oh, there. Are... We can't talk about anything without spoilers. Mm-mm. Because even Pottery Group. Mm-mm. 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 Okay, ask me something unrelated to the fic then. You're do you want to do you want to tell tell everybody what you put in a glass jar last week? What did I put in a glass jar? The big giant. Oh, that's not a jar. It's, it's a terrarium. <laughs> okay, I put a fig bonsai in a jar. Something deep inside of me really wants the roots to, like, bust out and break the jar. But I don't think that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. 
So, it's a huge round glass jug. Yeah, it's probably like what five liters. More than that. You think so? Mm. Okay, well, it's beautiful, and it's, like, tinted green, and it's, like, teardrop shape, mm. and the opening is, like, five centimeters across. Yeah. It is tiny. So, imagine trying to plant a tree, like, 35 centimeters down from a five centimeter opening, mm-hmm. and that's what I did. Yeah. And I put ferns in there, too, and it's adorable. It's super cute. It's really great. You planted one, too. Mm-hmm. Yours still has to get its tree. Yeah, it still needs its tree. But my favorite part of this entire thing was today you were sitting on the couch holding it in your lap and just, like, breathing into the jar. It needs carbon dioxide. She's like, <gasps> What if it runs out? I'm preloading with carbon dioxide. I would do the exact same for an unconscious person, just with and oxygen. You, and then you went and took it to your bed. <laughs> yeah, well. That's my favorite part. You're leaving tomorrow. I'm I need so sorry. a living thing to focus on. Got a lot of excess carer <laughs> Got a, energy. You're an intensive care bear. <laughs> I am an intensive care bear. Yeah. That's why I'm preloading with carbon dioxide. Yeah, I get it. That's what we would do in mm-hmm. ICU, except mm-hmm. with oxygen. Yeah. Because <laughs> the tree is in ICU. <laughs> it, I had to cut away so many of its roots, okay? It had some serious surgical... You know, stuff going on there. Serious surgical intervention. Yeah, it did. Post-operative care. There were, like, significant amputations happening. God, if I could transfuse it, I would. (laughs) Shut up, man. Why would you bring that up? This is my favorite thing ever. It's great. I just really wanted to get really big inside the tiny jar with the tiny opening, like... So and just like and just like Hulk smash out. Of it. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm yeah. waiting for that day. Yeah. I'm gonna keep feeding it like calcium and bone powder oh to like God. try and sh- strengthen the roots. Come on, in like buddy. sixty years. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Come on, buddy. Yep, you can do it. Break free. <laughs> One day I'm just like chipping away at the chisel. <laughs> I'm helping you out. <laughs> Come on, buddy. It's time. Free yourself from your shackles. How often do you think I should blow carbon dioxide into the jar? They're supposed to be self-contained units. You don't have to. Yeah, That's but the like, whole point. I feel like it appreciates it. Yeah, so you make that a daily practice. Daily? Okay, that's a lot. I'm gonna have to work my schedule around. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. What have you done? Yeah. <laughs> I've created a monster. I thought about it and I was like, I could just bring lots of plants into mm-hmm. places and then... They would soak up the CO2. There you go. I feel like I'm the first person to think of this. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Because I'm the one who's got house plants like everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. yeah. But I feel like orchids are probably not good gas exchangers. Like spec booms are supposed to be yeah. the best gas exchangers. I've got spec booms in my room. I've got house plants everywhere. I never go in there because. Don't pay attention. Is there anything else we should talk about? Not from the chapter, because the chapter we can't say anything about. Mm. Because there are literally Easter eggs in every other sentence. Yeah. And it's going to be a minefield of not giving away things. Mm. Um, oh, I have a question. Yeah. Are you... No, I... This is going to be a spoiler also, but, like, we haven't talked about this, but, mm. like, 
how do you feel about the role of Thestrals in this fic versus Blood Magic? Um, I think it's hard to say still because we haven't really, like, gotten there yet. Yeah, but, like, are you planning on bringing them back? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's fair. They will come back. I just, we haven't really explored how... Oh, that's right, because none of the none of the four of them have seen someone die. Yes. Right? Yet. Yet. Yeah. Okay, we can't really say that either because it's also a spoiler. Yeah, it's all spoilers. Okay. There's nothing left but spoilers. Yeah, I want to talk about all of the things we can't talk about. I'm done with topics if you're done with topics. I am. Awesome. Okay. Are we good? Yes. Okay, bye everybody. Bye everybody. They wave their hellos to John. To John. Who's John? Who's John? John's a new character. He's bought out the leaky. He owns a Starbucks franchise. I think maybe we shouldn't take it in that direction. I think there's enough original characters in this fucking chapter. There's like seven in the last like fucking six k. We just change it to John and see if anyone notices. Everyone will notice. John the barkeep at the leaky. Everyone's gonna be like. What? Everyone's gonna be like, we trusted you so much with fans. But, but like this, this, this just, mm-hmm. this just broke me. <laughs> okay, anyways.